0: Welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Just getting it in barely here at the end of the week. Sorry, we missed it on Wednesday. We couldn't get our schedules together to make it happen, but we're bringing it to you here on Friday. Charlie, I understand you're on a little bit of a a road trip. Is that correct?
1: That's right. Yes, we are still in Florida, but in a different part. And so I don't have my normal studio set up. I might sound a bit different for once. Uh huh. How much are you paying for gas on this road trip? Uh, $4.49. Is that um,
0: super high for Florida or just moderately high for Florida? No, that's
1: extremely high. Normally, the average since I moved here prior to January of last year was probably $2. I see. Do you put regular gas or uh, premium? What do you put in your car? Regular gas, especially at the moment. Such a cheapskate, Charles. Gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know. Is there a great advantage to putting non-regular gas in a Ford Explorer?
0: Uh, not to my knowledge. I think it's all kind of a little bit of a um, a marketing thing. Um, I mean, it might make some difference if you have a really, really high-end engine, but um, I can't tell that much difference when I use regular versus premium.
1: Well, there are some cars that require the premium gas because of the compression ratios in their engines, but I'm safely uh, aware, I think, that my Ford Explorer is not among them. Yeah, I was writing about the um,
0: anti-SUV campaign, which uh, has been going on for 20 years at least. I always kind of associate it in my mind with Ariana Huffington uh, back when she was first kind of making her transition from a uh, conservative gadfly to uh, sort of progressive um, activist. Did you know she wrote for National Review for
1: a while back then? I did not know that. I read your piece. I did not know that.
0: Yeah, she uh, she wrote for us, uh, read a few articles for us anyway. Um, anyway, so you've got an Explorer. I have a Jeep, I guess, which qualifies as an SUV too. Um, although my motorcycle gets 15 miles to the gallon. So that's practically green. Uh, use that when I can, uh, Florida, you probably don't get a lot of people turning their noses up at SUVs, but do you, uh, you encounter this elsewhere in the, in the world, in the country?
1: Well, I certainly encounter elsewhere in the world where people say, oh, I have such big cars in America. And I think, no, you have small cars. I must say, as the former proud owner of a Volkswagen Polo, the car so small that they don't make it or anything like it in the United States. and so small that me, at six foot three, uh, I used to bump my head on the ceiling of the car when we went over speed bumps too fast. Uh, I'm appreciative of the enormous American automobile and that's why I bought one <laughs> with my Explorer. And
0: you know, we also have a uh, Mini Cooper. And if you compare a modern Mini Cooper to the original, you know, Cooper Mini from back in the '60s, they're about twice as big. <laughs>
1: they're just really they're basically BMWs, aren't they? On the inside, they're made by BMW. Yeah, so yeah, BMW. it is a nice car.
0: Yeah, they're 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 super fun. It's a little you know convertible for uh, the nice weather we have here. Um. Are you feeling annoyed as many people are by the high gas prices? I mean, it's not a huge thing out of your budget, I don't imagine, or out of out of my budget. But for some people, of course, who, um, for some people, it is a much bigger relative burden relative to their incomes. And uh, you know, for some people, an extra hundred dollars a month on gas or an extra hundred dollars a week on gas, if there's people who have to drive a lot,
1: is um, is really significant. Yeah, I hate it. I absolutely hate it. It's one of the best things about America, that you can just get in the car and drive anywhere within the lower 48 at pretty much no cost, negligible cost. Yeah. Uh, at least relative to your other options. And this changes that. Uh, I... I I feel as if there is a billboard every 10 miles in the form of a gas station sign saying things are bad. Things are bad.
0: <laughs> yeah, it is a little um, I guess, um, an indicator of wider economic and social stress. So maybe uh maybe we tend to experience it that way. I've often said that, you know, my first real political memory is of um gas lines and gas rationing in the uh, in the late 1970s, uh, before the 1980 election. And um, I was very young, of course, but I remember being confused by it because I saw oil wells when we drove around, <laughs> and I knew that gasoline was made out of oil, and I couldn't figure out how it was in Texas that we weren't able to keep ourselves... Uh, stocked up properly with gasoline. I was very confused by why this had happened. It seemed like it, um, flew in the face of what was right in front of us and the resources we actually had, you know, it wasn't like we're talking about something that's being imported from some distant land. Although of course in the seventies, a lot of our oil certainly was, but, um, now all these years later, I kind of feel the same way (laughs) in some ways. Um, I've written a lot about the energy industry over the years, and particularly the oil and gas industry, and I understand that it's complex, and um, and uh, we can certainly talk about some of that, but there is a kind of starting place I won't call it a bottom line, but a, a starting point for the conversation that we are the world's largest oil producer currently. Um, we're one of the largest producers of oil, gas and refined petroleum products. We're one of the largest exporters. Um, of those things. Um, Sometimes we're in some months, we're the largest exporter in the world, depending on, you know, what's going on in the other markets. So they usually were maybe around number five or something like that. So we've got a lot of resources, you know, we're not talking about things like rare earth metals that can only be mined in three places in the world or something like that. Um, We're talking about something that we have ability to a certain extent to uh, control. And so I find it mystifying not why we are not better prepared for these shocks, because I understand the artificial constraints that we put in place, but I find it difficult to understand why we keep at least some of those artificial constraints in place. Um, I understand the people who are against oil and gas for climate change reasons. Um, I don't entirely share their views, but it's a coherent point of view. Um, But I have a really hard time with things like um, blocking pipelines within the United States that makes it difficult for us to say, sell gasoline that is refined um, in Texas up in the Northeast where they really need it. It's not as though we don't refine that gasoline and it doesn't get burned. It's just that it's easier to export it to Mexico, um, which is close by than it is to move that stuff up there because we don't have pipelines. And because of the Jones Act, which we can talk about a little bit if you want, which essentially keeps tanker trucks or tanker vessels rather from shipping fuel from refineries in the United States to the places where it's needed. So almost all of our constraints on this front are artificially imposed. And the environmental ones, I think, are um, negotiable, at least if you're dealing with reasonable people. And there are reasonable environmental concerns. Um, I think there are better and worse ways to to handle energy. But, you know, the Jones Act stuff is just pure, pure rent-seeking on the behalf of a very small number of politically connected firms. And the pipeline stuff is really, you know, kind of the ideological end of the environmental lobby, uh, flexing its control over people like Andrew Cuomo when he was governor of New York, um, who stopped pipelines from being built through there, which is why all the, you know, oil and gas you get out of Pennsylvania uh, can't make it to New York or, or really points north in a very easy way. So that is, to me, um, mystifying that we that our politics is not as as it hasn't evolved in such a way as to make that politically suicidal. Indeed, it is even, you know, politically beneficial for, for a lot of these people. Andrew Cuomo, from a purely political point of view, was probably doing what was in his interest.
1: Yeah. So let me ask you about this. So Joe Biden and his administration are now pretending that the reason that gas is 450 a gallon is Vladimir Putin. And uh, this is mostly untrue. And I say mostly because certainly the invasion of Ukraine has caused a short term increase in gas prices, but it is not responsible for the entire increase in gas prices over the last two and a half year, uh, a year and a half. Uh, this is opportunism. This is clearly what the administration intends to do. And in fact, Democrats have been telling journalists that there was a... I noticed your post on that. I was um,
0: rolling my eyes uh, so far back, I could actually look (laughs) at the back of my skull. Uh, Do you want to repeat what you uh, were talking about?
1: Yeah, this was a, a quote in a long Washington Post piece about the increase in the price of gas from a democratic pollster who worked on biden's election campaign and now works with various democratic groups saying well it's great that <laughs> ukraine was invaded by vladimir putin because now we have a face for uh and we have a name we can blame high gas prices on before it was all abstract and nuanced and people were confused <laughs> but now we can just point to russia and i thought well thanks for the heads up but yeah um so clearly that's all nonsense um well, it's not all nonsense. I mean, certainly the most recent dramatic run up in gasoline prices. Sure, sure, sure. And, As I say, but, but it's nonsense that that, that, that is the reason for, for, for most of it. I mean, and if it were, she wouldn't be referencing people's confusion prior to it happening. Um, what I'm interested in is this. The, the left-wing critique that I think is more sophisticated is that Republicans are trying to have it both ways. hmm that Republicans have backed the U.S. government's decision to stop buying oil from Russia, whatever that means in a fungible international market, and therefore backed this spike in gas prices above an already high baseline, and that Republicans are criticizing Joe Biden for his broader energy policy. Now, I don't think these two things are remotely incompatible. Because, as Germany is discovering, you want to have the sort of all above, all of the above energy policy that you just described, so that shocks such as these or decisions that you should take, such as this one, have less of an effect. If Germany were entirely nuclear powered, it wouldn't matter what Russia did. Yeah.
0: So well, and which when we're seeing you know right now um, in Europe that. Um, You know, the country that is really taking the hardest line in some ways um, on sanctions is France. Right. Which is the country that is being the least vulnerable to these kinds of energy shocks because of its uh, nuclear power capacity.
1: Right. And so, what what I, uh, where I come from is the same place I think you come from, which is let's just produce as much energy as we possibly can here um including in my view nuclear but and and I also um, object to this Biden administration line which you hear a great deal now which is well the republicans keep proposing ideas that would only help in the long term not the short right. term which might be a fair criticism if the republicans were and maybe they are claiming those solutions to be short term solutions but it's not a reason not to do it Um, because the long-term quickly becomes the short-term.
0: What I wonder, though, is... But also the solutions, the so-called solutions they're putting forward are even more long-term. You know, it's this green energy transition um, that is based on, among other things, having an annual lithium supply that far
1: exceeds total world production right now and such things. Right, so I wonder how much of the drill-baby-drill approach is viable in other words is it that simple because like you it often feels that simple to me yeah well I mean obviously it's it's
0: it's it's there there are complexities involved um, you know one of the things that i've I've written about some is that um you know we're a gigantic producer and a significant exporter but we're also a significant importer and this has to do with a number of factors um, partly having to do with the way our refineries tend to be configured, and uh, but some of it also has to do with just logistics that it's easier sometimes to get imported products to uh, certain places than it is to um, move domestic products there. Um, and that's not just a matter of government policy. You know, refineries are like any other business that they don't like to have a lot of um, excess capacity, and when things are tight, they tend to be a little more profitable or a lot more profitable. So um, we haven't really built um, a lot of new refining capacity. We haven't um, updated some refining capacity that we might, um, might opt to have. Um, There are things that can be done policy wise, I think, to create incentives uh, for that to happen. But, um, you know, the main thing is that we just have just straight up, you know, limits on production in some places like, you know, New York, Uh, we have limits on, Transportation through, uh, you know, blocking pipeline projects and blocking uh, reform of shipping, the Jones Act, and, and and all the rest of that stuff. These are things that you can do, you know, relatively easily. Um, you know, gas fields are not um, an on and off switch. You know, it's um, when things go out of production, um, so which they often do because prices are low. They sit on them for a while. They will idle some production. It takes some, you know, effort to get that stuff back on. There are Transactional transaction costs and uh, you know logistical bottlenecks and such that um that make that more more complex thing than just sort of flipping a switch, but yeah we um, could be doing a lot more than we're doing on this and this is kind of where the complexity of this I think it's kind of interesting because you know we produce just tons and tons and tons of natural gas Uh, Europe needs a lot of natural gas and they are. Getting it uh from Europe or from from Russia for the most part. Um, or at least, you know, in I think in Germany it's 65%, something like that. I think the overall European gas supply is about 40% uh from Russia. So it's a significant number. Um, there are lots of good applications for natural gas. Um, to the extent that it has displaced coal in um generating electricity, it's really improved our uh, Emissions uh, profile, and um, the Europeans right now are uh, really for the first time in, in a long time really starting to take that into consideration, where they've made uh, natural gas and nuclear investments um, available for um, for public investment and public support, with the idea that these are ways to transition to a uh, you know greener um, economy, something that's closer to their uh, climate change goals. If we were generating more nuclear power in the United States, which we really should, especially, you know, we've got much, much better technology for doing that now than we did in the 1960s, 1970s, Um, you know, modern uh, nuclear power is um, much more efficient, much safer, much more economical than the old model of, of how we did things. But that would also make a lot of what we produce in terms of natural gas more available for export, to places for whom nuclear power is not really going to be, uh, much of an option. You know, it's not going to be controversial, particularly to build nuclear power plants in a country like the United States that already has a lot of nuclear weapons. There's no, you know, kind of proliferation concern, uh, with nuclear power there. Um, but exporting that gas isn't just a matter of putting it on, um, ships. You know, there are, um, Terminals and export and import facilities and things that have to be built and maintained, expanded. And um, these are, are, are pretty long-term projects. And these are things that really take some real investment, both public and private.
1: So The reason gas prices are high, as far as I understand it, is that we had this global pandemic and demand dropped. Because demand dropped, then a lot of the suppliers said, let's turn off our production facilities, which you can do quite quickly. Mm -hmm. then demand increased and has increased pretty quickly and continued to increase pretty quickly. But it takes quite a long time to turn back on those facilities and all of the various networks that flow from them. And so we have high gas prices. And this is why the administration insists that uh, even if we started doing all the things the Wall Street Journal would like to do, the effects would take quite a while to show up at the pump. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, largely. I mean, and there's also just the straightforward issue of inflation, where um, inflation sometimes shows up more quickly in markets that are very, very efficient, where things are repriced um, constantly. You know, if you've got consumer goods sitting on shelves and sitting in warehouses, um, there's some effort necessary to reprice those things to reflect uh, inflation. But if you're talking about Things that are traded on very very efficient commodities markets, um, those prices go up pretty quickly. You know, I think even retail gas stations can update their prices. Like, what is it? Once an hour, they do something like that. So um, it'll show up in in some things before it does in others. So some of it is, yeah, there was there were sort of disruptions associated with COVID and the shutdowns. There's just regular old inflation from. Um, excessive spending, bad monetary policy, some of that was done in response to COVID, but was excessive. And then there
1: are the, um, the new thing of pricing in expected future disruptions in the market. Okay. So um, how long would it take for the United States to build a nuclear power plant is this 20 years or 30 years? Is this true? Is this artificial? You know, because I, because Jonah always points out that, um, one of the arguments that is made against the death penalty by anti death penalty advocates is that it takes so long to execute somebody, but mm-hmm. that they are the reason. Yes. <laughs> in large part, that that's true. Now, I'm against death penalty, although I, I, um, don't have a great deal in common with m- many of the people who are for, for these reasons. I think their tactics are often underhanded. Um, yeah. So when I listen to environmentalists say, "Well yes, 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 fine. Um, we could talk about nuclear power, but that's a 20 thirty year um, project. i mean is why? <laughs> is that because they've made it? Um, <laughs> a Mostly, yeah. year project
0: I mean, as a you know technological and engineering matter. Um, particularly when we're talking about you know smaller uh, modular modern uh, nuclear production, it's something that could probably be put online in a matter of a couple of years, assuming that you know the administrative uh, roadblocks
1: were cleared out of the way. It just seems to me to be an absolute no-brainer and and the the obvious future. I mean the the. There is this underlying uh, sentiment within the environmentalist movement, and I'm not accusing everyone of holding it, but there is an underlying sentiment uh, that is opposed to energy per se. Yeah, or well, that energy is sinful. Now, at its extreme, that manifests itself in this belief in the fall of man in this this paradise that we all enjoyed before the invention of you know the steam engine, but. A lot of it also manifests itself in a desire to reduce demand for energy, mm-hmm. um, aside from the matter of supply and the environmental questions, which are sometimes real and sometimes not. Uh, the The demand side of it seems to me to be utterly insane, uh, especially in a country such as the United States. And you, you're just, you are not going to fix this by convincing people that they don't need Cars or light bulbs, or I think you've hit upon the right
0: thing that uh, when you describe it as being sinful. I think the the idea isn't just energy, but consumption at our current levels is um, extravagant and immoral. I think that's kind of the basic outlook of the um, you know sort of more metaphysical wing of the environmental movement.
1: Yeah, and there's a really interesting piece uh, I read a long time ago when researching for a piece I wrote in the Los Angeles Times from 1989 uh, by uh, a writer called Paul Chiotti, And the headline is, Fear of Fusion, What If It Works? Yes. <laughs> and the point that he's making is that there are the obvious fears of unleashing forces beyond our control uh, and you know, essentially destroying the world with theoretical physics. But then... Um, there are an awful lot of people who don't want cheap, clean energy. And there's, there's a famous quote from this piece by Paul Ehrlich, mm-hmm. the environmentalist. Um, I just read a he long said piece. "Oh, you did? Yeah, it'll be in the next issue of the magazine, I think. Well, partly. Oh, you probably came across this then because it's it's famous uh, where he says that providing cheap, clean, unlimited energy would be like giving an idiot child a machine gun. Yeah. Now that seems to me just the wrong way to go about this because Americans are not and should not going to get on board with an agenda of, of restricting their access to energy. And given that, I don't see any alternative but to switch if we want to from fossil fuels to nuclear and then using the technologies with which the Democratic Party is so obsessed around the edges uh, to top it up, if you will, and in certain strategic environments. Is yeah, that but
0: right? yeah, You know, the sort of nuclear and renewable mix, I think, has a lot of attractive features to it. And one of which is that, yeah, you don't have to do all of your power uh, from nuclear, but you can have a nuclear baseline. And then sort of one of the good things, but also um, inefficient things about, about nuclear power is that it's really hard to sort of increase or decrease output of a plant. Like it just starts producing X and it's just going to produce that. Um, Now they're actually recently developed some, some easier ways to do that. Um, But if what you're looking to do is to provide a a baseline that'll, you know, have um, a reliable, predictable source of power there that your uh, solar and wind and other things can uh, contribute to Um, then that's kind of a nice mix, right? Because in a lot of parts of the country, you can, you can get a lot of power from, um, solar and wind, um, most of the time, but then there are times when you can't. And, um, you know, having a, a reliable baseline sort of enables those, um, alternative forms of power and makes them more practically usable.
1: Because if you don't have any wind for a while or the clouds come over, it doesn't matter. Right. Yeah.
0: And, um, you know, there are you know problems with um, it's really difficult to uh, store energy, as you know. And um, there's also just, you know, timing issues where people tend to use more energy um, in the evenings, uh, particularly in the hot parts of the country where we're all running our air conditioners when we want to go to sleep. So, um, you know, solar power is not
1: super great for that. Do you think this high gas price fiasco, irrespective of where the blame lies, is going to hurt the president and his party in the way that it did during the 70s? You, you mentioned remembering gas lines. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to hurt them badly. Um, this is not to endorse this view uh, among American voters, but it is a longstanding and very predictable Feature of the American electorate that they blame and punish the party in power for um, economic problems in general, but particularly for inflationary problems and particularly, particularly for high gas prices, which Americans just hate uh, for reasons that you got into uh, earlier. It's not just a uh, economic thing for us. It's a it's a cultural thing as well. And uh, so, yeah, I think that it was already probably going to be a bad november for the uh democrats but i think it's going to be a uh,
1: much 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 worse one
0: than, than it would have been because
1: otherwise. you and i have talked a lot and both written a lot about this imperial presidency that gets blamed for everything and uh, neither of us like it neither of us think it's healthy and most of the time we wish that voters would knock it off as such pretending that Joe Biden's election was the reason gas prices are high, is, is of course, silly and should be resisted. But I don't think I can go quite as far as some who share our view have gone in completely um, uh, forgiving Biden for what's happening. Because if you look at his long-term policies, they would make this more likely. They would increase the baseline energy cost, and they would make it more difficult for the United States to adapt to crises such as the one in Ukraine. And I sense that a lot of voters understand that. Now, there are a lot of them will just look at this and say, gas prices are high, Joe Biden is president, therefore, and that's silly. But I don't think it's unfair for them to understand, whether instinctively or in more detail, that Biden and his party do have an approach to this that is that is going to make these problems worse and and if you're looking at joe biden on the one hand and then a republican on the other hand who says let's drill everywhere all hours of the day yeah it's reasonable to reward one of those two isn't it oh sure um
0: I mean, I, I think we should always resist kind of, you know, the uh, telling ourselves pleasing counterfactuals that if, you know, this election had gone a different way or that election had gone a different way, then the world would be better or worse in this way or that way. I mean, things are, I think, too too complex to really make those sorts of, a uh, oh, little dog barking there in the background, sorry, uh, to make those sorts of uh, claims. Yeah, I think people understand that less is less and more is more. And... Um, and I think that people also maybe understand that, um, a lot of the, you know, kind of so-called green new deal thinking assumes capacities that are not yet in existence. Um, you know, if we switched all of our cars to electric cars tomorrow, um, as I alluded to earlier, we wouldn't have, um, the mining capacity to build enough batteries to, uh to uh, keep those things going Uh, and is something automakers right now are starting to figure out for themselves which is why you see so many car companies now investing in uh, mining companies um, because they know that they're going to have to work hard to get the raw materials they need for their batteries for their electric vehicles in the future
1: so yeah go ahead please and also we have a a bit of magical thinking here because to build a, a tesla you need lithium yeah. And to accrue enough lithium to build a fleet of Teslas, you need China. <laughs> and so when Biden says reasonably, I don't want to buy oil from Russia because Russia is evil and has invaded its neighbor, we're all expected to say, I agree. Therefore, I will suffer through. Increase gas prices, and maybe we should. But then, when Jen Psaki gets asked about that, she says, "Of course, we wouldn't have to worry about trade-offs like that one if everyone had an electric car." But that's not true, right? And there are a lot more oil suppliers than there are lithium suppliers.
0: Yeah. Um, now, right. that's an interesting thing. I think that um, you know, I, I resist um, central planning and, uh, and and that sort of stuff, but. It doesn't have to be the case that eighty percent or whatever it is of the world's lithium supply comes out of China. Um, there are other places to get the raw materials where they really have sort of a near monopoly is on you know the processing and, and refining and um, you know converting the, the raw stuff into the usable stuff. There's no you know natural reason why that has to be the case. Um, You know, oil is where oil is, and if you don't have any oil in your, you know, your territory, you're not going to be able to uh, drill for oil where you don't have it. Um, But there, you know, there's more than one place to mine lithium out of the ground um, or get it out of water, however they do it. And uh, there are certainly we could have more places processing and uh, and bringing that stuff onto the market than we do. Um, You know, it's. It's not something that is a um the result of a natural physical limitation
1: the way it is if you're talking about gold mining or something like that No, although at the moment it's tough right, and that's you
0: know what I'm talking about you know the the sort of you know green dreams assume a lot of things that are not yet in existence, so if you want to have a situation in which you've got both you know an electrified uh, vehicle fleet and a situation in which you're not really almost entirely dependent on China for um, providing critical resources for that, then there's a lot of stuff that
1: has to be built and developed. And that is, uh, that's a
0: long-term project. You know, that's, that's that's the work of decades.
1: Right, which is why it's so infuriating to hear them say, wow, well, we, we, we didn't need to do the thing that other people wanted to do because that's only a short-term, a long-term solution.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of, you know, a lot of real strangely powerful immediacy bias. You know, when you've got your Tesla and you charge it up and it all seems very clean and, uh, you know, snazzy. And I, I love Tesla's and I love, love electric cars and I think that um, it's a great technology. But there's a back end there too. You know, um, that electricity gets generated somewhere. Um, a lot of it gets generated by coal. Some of it gets generated by natural gas. Um, those batteries and the rest of the things the car is made of requires mining and refining, and uh, some of this requires petroleum products as well as you know pretty much all plastics do. So it's you know it's always a little more complicated than um, than it would seem if all you know is well I plug my car in the uh, battery meter goes up and I drive around.
1: Yeah, I mean I, as you know, my main mode of transportation is my golf cart. Right. Yes. It has lithium batteries in it now. I converted it last summer. And I still have to pay the electricity bill for it. It's not free. <laughs> no. Um, there are also a lot of problems with electric cars. Uh, one of them is their range, another is how long they take to charge. Um that just haven't yet been solved.
0: Yeah, and I think those, really, those are really I think those are really overstated problems um you you know most most people don't drive their cars more than you know 20 miles a day and um
1: yeah okay but 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 but,
0: and you need 15 minutes to give you know the best of the sort of new ones uh, an 80 percent charge
1: ah but but the thing is is that it it decreases the versatility of the car so suppose that you only have one car now most of the time you would not struggle at all from having a range of 150 miles or what you will, or from a 15-minute super recharge, which isn't great for batteries, but that's a separate issue. But you would want to have in your back pocket the ability to drive long distances. And electric cars at the moment don't provide that. And everyone I know who has a Tesla, and there are a lot of Teslas where I live, has it as a second car. Yeah. So if they are driving to the supermarket or into town uh, or they're doing the school run then sure it's great but if they have to drive from florida up to new york then they'll take their chevy suburban or what you will mm-hmm. uh, that is a problem because people who are looking i mean i have one car at the moment and a golf cart and the, that explorer works just as nicely taking the kids to school as it does driving as like i just did down here yeah um so i do think that is a problem um yeah, well, I think
0: that um, I think that there's maybe um, an unbundling that's coming there where um, you know, you've got really two separate tasks. You've got your, I live in a city and I go around and I take the kids to school and I go to the grocery store. Maybe I go to an office and I come home and I rarely drive more than 30 or 40 miles in a day um, is one set of tasks versus inner city travel is a different set of tasks. And, um, you know, I suspect that um, that is the sort of thing that the markets will address, you know, reasonably well in the future.
1: Yeah, at the very least, it's a, it's a little odd for the administration to be simultaneously saying that increasing drilling would be a, a long-term solution, and so uh, isn't relevant to this current predicament. But also, if you want to escape this by an electric car, <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, some uh, some very interesting stuff. But um, you know who doesn't hate these high oil prices are a lot of my neighbors in Texas or people kind of west of us where, um, although um, they don't love high prices as kind of universally as you might uh, think, you know, they don't really like volatility in their markets very much either. Um, They like relatively high prices, but they like relatively high stable prices uh, more than they like very high unstable prices. But, um, yeah, I mean, we're going to have to um, see a lot more investment in um, conventional fuels and conventional energy sources to um, stabilize and uh, reduce our vulnerability to similar risks like this
1: in the future. I think that um, it would be deeply, deeply irresponsible not to think so, too. Well, Kevin, we said we were going to keep this short. We didn't. It is Friday. We need to get it up. And I'd like it to be on the internet before gas hits, what, $5 a gallon in about an hour? <laughs> All right, then.